The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the producers, the affiliates, or digital platforms hosting this podcast. All content is for the purposes of education, conjecture, and at times entertainment. We promote inclusiveness and diversity. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Into the Deep with Jay Caster. Welcome to Into the Deep. I'm Jay Costa. I am excited about today's guest. He's one of the first Westerners accepted into a traditional ayahuasca lineage. He's an author and a shamanic guide and founder of Blue Morpho. Today's guest is Hamilton Souther. Hamilton Souther started Blue Morpho, the ayahuasca and shamanism center featured in the New York Times and in National Geographic Adventure magazine, as well as on the National Geographic channel. For over a decade, Hamilton has guided thousands of participants in shamanic states of consciousness through professional and safe ayahuasca ceremonies. These are designed to open consciousness and bridge the physical and spiritual worlds. Hamilton has personally transformed shamanism into an accessible spiritual modality for Westerners. So, join me as we seek light and journey into the deep with Hamilton Souther. Enjoy. Hamilton, thank you so very much for joining me today. I can't thank you enough for your time. Oh, you're welcome, Jay. It's a pleasure to allow me on your podcast. Thank you so much. Ah. Well, we're honored to have you. Uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing with our viewers and our listeners who you are and what it is you do, my friend. Sure. My name is Hamilton Souther, and I'm trained as a medical vegetalista from the Amazon in my early 20s. I went down to the Amazon and uh, was one of the first Westerners to actually be accepted into a traditional uh, ayahuasca lineage. And since then, I've been an entrepreneur. I've started Blue Morpho and uh, a number of Web3 based tech platforms really focusing on NFTs. That's awesome. And now with the NFTs, you know, it's some people would see it as like a a complete different dichotomy of like NFTs. And then like, you know, this ayahuasca ceremony, you know, in the Amazon, like that trajectory, you know, (laughs) how did you get there? (laughs) Sure. I mean, you know, when I started Blue Morpho, Blue Morpho is, you know, a healing center that was dedicated to Amazonian plant medicine. And ayahuasca is just one of the many Amazonian plant medicines. There's literally hundreds. And I studied with a lineage of, uh, they call them medico vegetalistas or, you know, doctors of plant medicine. And sort of now they're known as shamans, but they didn't really use that word to describe themselves. And, um, you know, I was honored and, and really lucky to be invited into a lineage and, and to train and learn that kind of Amazonian medicine. And just to frame it, it's it's like, think of, you know, tribal peoples who don't have access to any other kinds of doctors who in their tribes have a person who specializes in medicine and the forest is their huge pharmacopoeia that they use to be able to get all of these plants. And so um, I started one of the first centers dedicated to that kind of plant medicine and you know, we opened up to people all over the world. And by 2005, 2007, we were receiving, uh, you know, international publication and notoriety. And that brought an influx of people from literally all walks of life from all over the world. And uh, one of the most amazing things about sharing Amazonian plant medicine with them was that it gave us an opportunity to learn about each other and create community. And um, 
it just turned out that there was a big overlap between people interested in these kinds of ceremonies and technology. And so we had people that were involved in early internet, and then we had people that were, you know, involved in early SaaS software. And then from there, people who were involved in uh, early Web3, first some of the, you know, the earliest Bitcoin participants, and then from there, some of the earliest Ethereum participants, and then some of the earliest creators of NFTs. And by that period of time in our trajectory, which had already been about 15 years in, we were interested in how we could make a bigger impact and a greater impact and a more positive impact. And we were looking to technology as a way to be able to share that information and, and share those ideas. And so over these plant medicine ceremonies and this very open imagination and extended place of consciousness, we formed a think tank to try to use, you know, these more advanced forms of modern technology connected with the plant-based technologies and the consciousness-based technologies to really create something special for people. And so we started with what we thought was one of the most underserved part of the population, which were the creators, the content creators, artists, musicians, et cetera. And we saw that there was this, you know, Eiffel Tower shaped pyramid to success in, in for these incredibly creative people. And we wanted to actually find a way to include more people into that creator economy. And that's where then NFTs and crypto started to tie into how we would do that. As we started to ask the questions, okay, how do we better monetize and, you know, more fairly support artists? What means do we have to, you know, to use what's available. And that was the right at the same time as the emergence of NFTs. So one dovetailed into the other, and we were supported by a large network of people with expertise in the field. And together, that's how we got there. That's awesome. And I think it's great, you know, especially for creative minded individuals and really looking to, you know, technology and where it's advancing. And so I've got to ask, you know, and if you if you don't mind me asking, you know, do you get pushback from anybody because of your, you know, your foundation and your roots in Amazonian and indigenous work to now with NFTs where some folks feel like it's detrimental to the environment and, you know, what are your thoughts and like, and, and how do you, you know, position those? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, you know, misinformation is the biggest brain rot on society, sadly. And it started when I got involved in Amazonian plant medicine and the plants were demonized. And I was trying to explain to people that the demonization of the plants is the internal demon that they're wrestling with themselves. And then, you know, these Web3 networks came out that do have a, a negative and detrimental impact on, on the environment in terms of, you know, the amount of energy usage and carbon, but it's really a very like, um, you know, early foundational state of technology that was created and the new blockchains and the new uh, networks that have come out are actually very energy friendly. They don't operate on the same um, algorithms and the same energy use profiles as uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Ethereum's even pivoting right now into a much more energy efficient way of operating. And the chains that we build on are actually all very energy efficient. And so if you look at the amount of benefit that gets created uh, through these you know, different kinds of platforms and the the use of energy in a very positive way, you can actually use a lot of what gets created in terms of value to ultimately carbon offset. And it's now possible to run blockchains at carbon negative. It's possible to have NFT platforms that are carbon negative. If you have that mindset to, you know, 
partner with carbon credit companies and, and carbon offset companies and carbon sinking companies, you can actually offset the blockchain energy cost to zero. And so once again, it's a demonization of technology coming from a misunderstanding. And we've been confronting that the entire time. And so as one step, you're moving forward to positively progress and support society. You have the rest of society sort of pushing the sand dune back down on you. And I understand that there are reasons for that, but that's really what's going on. I mean, they're they're not opposed at all. Uh, I honestly think if you want to save the Amazon, you make it more profitable to save the Amazon than destroy the Amazon because the Amazon is being destroyed by a profit motive. So if you can actually figure out a way to make it more profitable to save it, and you can use blockchain technologies and NFTs to be able to actually do that, you you will have a way to offset the you know carbon negative that we're seeing you know, across so much more of the modern world than just these new emerging technologies. I love that. And you bring up so many great points, you know, that demonization, it almost feels like that there's smear campaigns that seemingly happen around anything that takes away from or shifts that paradigm. And, and so, and you brought it back to plant medicine, you know, how many times people, you know, have talked about the, you know, the negative aspects of, of anything that's, you know, changed us, you know, whether it's consciously, you know, physically, you know, from just a plant-based things that have been around for, you know, longer than human beings. So I appreciate that. Um, with going back now, if you don't mind, we're going to travel back in time, Nick, you you getting started, you know, and and you said in your twenties wanting to get, you know, being accepted into these circles by indigenous folks. What, what was that thing that you feel like really made that connection where you were accepted into that inner circle? I mean, it's, a, it's you know, it was a wild adventure. Um, fundamentally, I studied anthropology when I was at the university and I was really interested in cultural anthropology. And, uh, you know, so I studied cultures from all over the world. The indigenous cultures all used some kind of plant medicine and they, most of them used some kind of visionary plant medicine as well as part of their, you know, great pantheon of plants that they used in their healing rituals. And, um, you know, I was in my early 20s and I was fresh out of school and I was really interested in, um, you know, whether or not there was really fact behind these ethnographic stories that I had read about when I was studying. And through a spontaneous series of events, which is, you know, really kind of amazing in their own right for me, I had a spontaneous spiritual awakening before I ever went. And so I was already now kind of tapped in to this idea of, um, you know, these ceremonies to be able to have visionary experiences. And I was having my own. And so I was feeling like I was being guided by them. And so um, I went down to Peru looking for an apprenticeship. And um, I had a pretty clear idea that within 90 days of going down there, I would find it. And so I went on a journey as a backpacker to see if it was actually true. And um, it ended up turning out to be true. So I ended up going into a really remote part of the Amazon and the Peruvian Amazon and um, aligned with a group of healers that were out there. And I started to participate in ceremonies with them. And then they just watched me for about a year and a half. So I would go back and forth out there. And I had started Blue Morpho really as a jungle trekking business, as a way to be able to take people out on this incredible adventure that we were going on. And as I participated in the ceremonies, Um, you know, the people got a little bit more comfortable with me. And then ultimately there was this watershed moment where, uh, over that year and a half, I had been watching other healers perform and things that, you know, they were doing to help others. And one day I was passing by sort of the grand elders home. And right when I passed by, he erupted into screams 
And I ran up into it. He was in his mid eighties. I ran up into his house. It was right out of something like a movie. And, and he was rolling around on the ground, clutching his leg and his leg was swollen three times its normal size from the knee down. There was no broken skin. There were no broken bones. There was no sign of trauma to the area other than this incredible swelling. And so I immediately started to perform uh, different kinds of healing arts on him that I had observed over the year and a half that I had been there. And lo and behold, he actually was healed. And I couldn't believe it. There was no one else there at that time I could have called on to come over and help or support. So it was, you know, literally just him and me in the forest and, you know, sort of channeling from what was around me to pull in how to be able to do this. And I helped him. And at the end of helping him over four days, he actually told me that in his opinion, I had saved his life and that he wanted to know what to give me in return. And he asked me how much I was going to charge him. And I actually, I told him that I wasn't interested in any kind of payment. What I wanted was to be uh, included in their healing circle and to be taught. And so um, that night he met with another elder in their community and they agreed to open up, you know, what is typically a very closed uh, group of, you know, people just from bloodlines. And they allowed me in. And that night we ha- uh, held an ayahuasca ceremony together. And that was the night that they started my formal apprenticeship. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, if, uh, if there wasn't a, I mean, obviously because the gentleman survived, but I mean, what, what more of a key indicator did they need to say, Hey, you know, it's okay. I mean, that's just, that's incredible. Did you find that some of the stuff that you had started learning before being welcomed into this, you know, inner circle was a little bit different than some of the stuff, whereas like maybe you didn't get the full scope of information beforehand and now you're seeing, or was it just an extension of that? Or is it maybe new insight, new, new rituals or different approaches? Like what was the difference in in what you observed? Oh, it was night and day. I mean, (laughs) just night and day, you know, before apprenticeship, I was allowed to sort of maybe peer in through like a little crack in the door of what was going on. And I got to participate um, and observe. But the night that they took me into apprenticeship, something beyond any experience I had ever had before that actually occurred. So we drank ayahuasca and, you know, it's usually the onset somewhere between 20, 30 minutes. And there's kind of a a pretty habitual pattern that starts to form. There's different feelings in the body, temperature changes and stuff like that. And then, you know, kind of pixelation starts and then the sacred geometric patterns form around us. And, you know, you can, they become multi-D. Only that night, instead of kind of all that happening, I just immediately appeared in the first vision in this tunnel. And this tunnel sucked me into it with a force that I couldn't resist. And so it was like a tractor beam out of sci-fi or like a, you know, a swirling uh, whirlpool that just like literally sucked me into it. I was in this tunnel of light. It closed off into a point of black. It took a while to get through it and it was excruciatingly painful. Um, I thought I was dying and I thought I was going to pass out at both at the same time. Everything went black for an indeterminate period of time. It literally could have been seconds or longer. I have no way to know. And when the light came back, I was in my chair and I was in a suspended state of another kind of psychic phenomena where the two maestros or master shamans who are teaching me were now like in a shared state of psyche with me. And I could hear them inside my mind, one inhabiting the, the left side of me and one inhabiting the right side of me here. And I, you know, I thought this was, you know, some kind of like, you know, 
extrasensory perception that was happening, but not something that, you know, was shared. And so I thought to myself to test it, to ask Julio, the grand elder who was sitting next to me for a, a, a mapacho, a jungle tobacco. And so I asked him for a smoke and he literally in my head, not verbally, I think to myself, Julio, can you pass me a mapacho? And he reaches into his pocket and goes, ha, 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 and he hands it to me. And that's when I realized this had started and nothing like that had ever happened before. And then training really began. It started in a very, um, really successive progress and progression of basic skills and those basic skills, you know, being added to and really gaining the comfort of the visionary arts to be able to be comfortable in your body in the ceremonies, comfortable with the energies that everyone else has that are, you know, obviously representing different kinds of afflictions that are coming out of them. Um, comfortable with the intensity of it, which at first is blinding and makes you think like you're going to pass out or die pretty much every time you have to ultimately become strong enough in that space to be comfortable. Um, just learning how to live in the forest and being trained in the arts of the forest as much as the visionary arts, because they go hand in hand is every time you you're going to heal somebody, you have to, you know, first figure out and diagnose what the problem is and then what kind of plants they need. Then you need to be able to navigate the forest to be able to find those plants, collect the plants accordingly, prepare the different medicines for them, whether it's a tincture or a tea or a poultice, um, et cetera, or something that they're going to eat. So you have to be able to do all of that. So you learn to actually just fully be uh, embraced by the forest and live with harmony within nature. And then, um, you know, the different kinds of rites of passage that you go through to kind of make it through their graduations, ultimately to becoming a practitioner on your own. Right on. And when, how long of a duration would you say that it is from the time that, you know, you start that true apprenticeship to when you're now seen, at least in the elders' eyes, as reaching that master level? So the, the apprenticeship has a varying amount of time. It's not like Western school where you have a graduation at X time. It's really how long it takes you as an apprentice to accumulate the experiences that are necessary. And that can be different for everybody. And it's also dependent upon the kinds of training that you're put through and how much support you get from the elders. And so uh, anywhere typically from five to 10 years is, is common. You know, a little quicker, a little bit longer is also common. Um, but then in our lineage, you get the title maestro, but that means teacher. It doesn't really mean master. It means more mm. like teacher level. It means you're allowed now to, um, practice on your own. You're allowed to carry the medicines on your own. You're allowed to perform healing arts, uh, on your own without the presence of others. So it's kind of like you, you know, you don't need a guide and you no longer need a chaperone. Uh, so that's really like the beginning part of it. And then you get the title maestro and then it's, it's like apprenticeship starts all over again, because now you have to relearn everything without the presence of the other people helping you. So it's completely different if you're in a ceremony or you're helping somebody uh, with somebody else there that you can lean on, look to, you know, be supported by. If you have to do it all on your own, you have to kind of go through all the same processes again on now on your own. And we call that a maturation phase. And that phase can last anywhere from another five, 10, maybe even 20 years. Right on. And, and did you find that period to be a little bit more challenging because you were on your own without having someone to bounce that stuff off of? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, equally challenging. Uh, yes. And yes. And yes. Uh, <laughs> the, the apprenticeship is unbelievably challenging because it's all fresh and it's very scary because it's unknown. 
as you now do it on your own, you, you the the intensity of the responsibility sets in. And mm. in my case, I was in my mid twenties, and um, you know, really leading one of the first dedicated ayahuasca retreats and lodges in the world. You know, that was fully dedicated to Amazonian plant medicine. And it, as we grew, the intensity of the the kinds of healing we were performing and the size of the groups grew at the same time. So as soon as we were comfortable working with five or ten people, demand all of a sudden was ten or fifteen, and then went up to twenty, and then thirty, and then forty people at a time. And so, you know, that just amped up the intensity kind of each year and each step of the way. And so, you know, it was a, it was an extensive maturation process and it was definitely equally as hard, if not harder. Wow, man. And, and so have there been instances where, you know, maybe you've been leading someone through a, a ritual or ceremony and uh, maybe, maybe they weren't handling it too well. And you had to really like go back to maybe an old story of your own or an experience of your own to really pull from that experience to help somebody else? Like every night. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty wow. much every I night. Uh, the shamanism takes you back to like the very beginning of the practices at the beginning of every ceremony. So you start the ceremony at exactly the same place, which is that you as a practitioner are now initiating the ceremony. And there's a series of steps that you take to initiate it in a safe way. And so that reinforces that original step into the ceremony itself, which mimics the very first time you ever participated with anybody else. Um, from there, as you start to get into the ceremony, you have to draw on the totality of your experience, which is really a connection and communication with all of the different kinds of energies that are there. The practitioners call them spirits, but it's easier just to think of them as energies because people get confused between like ghosts and what do they mean by spirit, but they're really meaning like the energy of the wind that they're harnessing with you know, wind turbines is the energy, that uh, is the spirit of the wind. And when they're talking about like, you know, uh, the energy of the ocean and the energy of the waves, they're talking about the currents and the, the tides that are now being harnessed for energy as well. I mean, it's, it's very rooted in the physical world that we study in science. And so you just have to get, you know, you get used to those energies and people bring all different kinds of them to the ceremonies. Um, and it's all happening at once. And so you constantly have to go and draw back on your previous experiences. Um, sometimes there's very little time to, to do it. It's not very linear. So you're drawing on the resources at the same time as you're imparting them into the ceremony. And it's sort of a flow state that everyone gets into. And then there are also moments where there is a little bit more time. You might get like stumped. You might just get stuck in a certain place. And you actually have to back off in that moment. And uh, just kind of continue supporting the ceremony, but take that, that time to really go in and ask what's going on, not presume that you know what's going on, and really ask sort of great spirit or the, the you know, source in the ceremony itself, what's going on here and you know, how do we solve this problem? There's a problem that we can't just solve in the flow, and that requires drawing on literally all of the connections that you made um, and all the different ways that you learned from the very beginnings of apprenticeship. And do you give individuals maybe some advice or maybe some some things that they could do on their own in preparation before even embarking on that kind of journey? Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, Blue Morpho starts when people first contact us. And for most people, even before that, because they've researched us and, you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to share our story and some of our ideas and wisdom, um, you know, in venues like this. And so, uh, you know, we start with a welcome package about all the different ways to be physically comfortable in the environment and then what to expect from an ayahuasca ceremony. 
And, uh, you know, both on the side of what you can expect in terms of the plant medicines, the physical reaction to them, the mental emotional states that you can go into, um, how to be able to navigate the ceremonies. Really, the goal is to support everybody as much as you possibly can so that they have as many tools and skills um, in a very short period of time, you know, so introducing them, you know, to people who maybe had limited experience or no experience with this to trying to get them five, 10, 15 tools, 20, 30, 40 tools, 50 to hundred tools by the end of three days, that would be available to them in ceremony to make everything run smoother for everybody. So, you know, the idea is impart as much wisdom and, you know, share as many different ideas as we can with people to, to draw on those tools, to be actually available to them in ceremony so that we can really work together to, um, you know, have really the most positive, impactful experience possible. The thing about visionary and psychedelic medicines is that you can't shut the experience for the person off and just work on them like, you know, a surgeon does with anesthesia, right? The, the person goes to sleep and they do their work. In a psychedelic ceremony or a visionary ceremony, the person's going through an experience as the plants are actually working on them simultaneously, and you have to guide both. So you have to guide the physical response to having the plants be introduced to the body, which is a, a very like a psychiatric kind of notion of treatment. It's like the plants are a kind of medicine. They're doing something physiological to the brain. Studies have been done. It's measurable. There's changes to brain chemistry, et cetera. Um, as that happens, the body goes through a different, you know, number of different kinds of physical sensations that can be odd or foreign. And then the visionary experience starts and they're, part and parcel uh, equally important to the healing experience of somebody because you have the, the physical transformation that's coming directly from the plants. And then you have the mystical psychological transformation that's coming through the events that take place in the visionary experience. And it's very important to someone's healing that they come in the visionary experience to recognize that they have experienced healing so much so that they can say, I am healed. I was sick with these symptoms or with these illnesses. And so you're guiding both of those at the same time. And it's a very fluid experience. So supporting everybody and getting as much out of that as they can is really important to the outcome. Right on. And so I, there's a lot of, obviously we've seen a, a spike uh, with people who suffer from anxiety, people who suffer from different, you know, compulsive disorders, things of that nature. In your opinion, um, and in your practice, have you have you noticed that folks that maybe tend to have a little bit more anxiety going into these ceremonies maybe shouldn't do it or should? It's really a question around um, the nature of the disorder. If you have anxiety and the anxiety is something that's manageable, the ceremonies are going to be very, very supportive and helpful for that. If you have a certain you know, kind of anxiety disorder that could lead to extreme dissociative events or you know, other kinds of disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar, you need to be really careful how intense you go into these kinds of experiences. And in the Amazonian medicine practices, for different kinds of people experiencing different disorders, you would prescribe a different number of ceremonies and a different trajectory associated with that. So now there's this popular concept of microdosing. Well, for people who have much more significant, severe forms of disorders, you start with the idea of microdosing or much smaller ceremonies, or even where the participant doesn't actually take the psychoactive substance 
and just the practitioner does, they come to the ceremony and they start to receive different kinds of healing, depending on their healing trajectory, then you could change the amount of plants you actually use over time. If you have, um, you know, different kinds of depression, if you have different kinds of just, you know, darkness and mentalization that's taking place, different kinds of emotional states, the ceremonies can be incredibly liberating. Um, but I think the big difference for people is that the visionary experience is part and parcel of your mental states. And so a lot of times people dissociate from that and they say, this is happening to me, not I'm creating this experience because this is what I'm bringing to it. Or they, they anthropomorphize the plants and they say, you know, this grandmother did this to me, or this mm -hmm. grandfather did this to me, or this mother plant did this to me, or this spirit of that plant did this to me. And I understand that that's a way of conceptualizing the experience and it's a way of framing the experience, but often there's a coloring to that experience that comes directly from your own psyche and what you're going through. And so in those cases, I just, you know, typically suggest that people try to refrain from creating conclusions and conclusive understandings and statements about the experience and the ceremonies as they're still going through them. And they may find that those ideas like, oh, I got it. This thing was said to me this, and this meant that, and that means this kind of, it can evolve over time and change. And for people who have, you know, really dark experiences, often that's coming from the baggage that they're carrying. And, um, you know, I ultimately learned to frame that if I start to see it in ceremony, that's actually an incredible positive, because that means those aspects of myself are now coming apart and they're kind of being unwoven in this tremendous tapestry of what's going on inside my mind all the time that I can see a visionary representation of what represents that depression or anxiety or PTSD or darkness or trauma that I'm carrying or that negative self-critical voice that I may have or something. I'm actually now seeing it separate from me. It's going and it's literally on its way out. When it completely exits the visionary field, in the ayahuasca treatment, that person is now healed of that thing. So often somebody starts to see that, that thing might look like it's talking back to them or challenging them in some way. That's no different than that voice challenging you when you say, I'm going to, you know, get to get this great spurt of inspiration. And you're like, I'm going to do this thing. And then your own voice starts to criticize and doubt and fear and cut you down. And who are you to think you can do this? And that's no different than seeing this, you know, like, kind of face looking at me, challenging me in the ceremony. When it got to there, I realized all you have to do is just say goodbye. Like, thank you. Thank you so much. Goodbye. And it leaves. And it's actually a, another watershed moment of healing. And then after that, in its absence, then, you know, all the light and bliss and kind of like real beauty turns on that we call the medicine. I love that. And, and I can only surmise that you've experienced this yourself with getting rid of some things that didn't serve you. And, uh, oh, it's how I learned. Yeah. You start by going through the healing processes yourself. Um, there isn't anybody that comes to these medicines that's quote unquote healed. And there isn't anybody that comes to them that is in essence, so sick that that can't be fixed. We kind of say the only thing that can't be fixed is death itself. And that's just a transition in its own right. Um, you know, so to learn, you have to go through literally everything. It's, it's almost like a cellular deconstruction and reconstruction of your body. And you, um, you, you realize kind of everything that's going on in your psyche. You have to go through an entire inventory of how you process information, how you relate to your own experiences, how you relate to the good and bad of life, how you relate to the hardships, how you relate to the real crushing moments, 
how you, you know, ultimately also relate to the, the positive moments. There's, you know, a tendency to get stuck either in the negative or to add too much to the positive. Mm. And the idea is to become very fluid in the movement so that if you end up in the negative, you can come out of it very quickly. And when you're in the positive to not worship that positive thinking that it's going to, you know, create some kind of trauma when it, you know, kind of goes away and the, the pendulum starts to swing again in the nature of experience. So we go through all the different kinds of purging and healing experiences and you get an entire teardown of your psyche, the super ego, ego, you know, it of you gets completely taken apart and uh, reconstructed and it takes place over hundreds of ceremonies. Have you found, or do you, in your opinion, do you think that with a lot of the seemingly more Western dogmatic thinking kind of that approach to it keeps people from even trying it in the first place or even wanting to be involved in ceremony? I think so. There's a stigma that's still in existence, although it's lessening little by little as there's more interest in this. And there's mm. also, you know, more proof and there's more science. And there's now, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy that's very, you know, clinical on that side. And then there are the healing ceremonies that we learned how to practice that are equally, in our opinion, a form of the practice of a kind of medicine, but they're much more communal in the way that it's practiced. But ultimately, the you know the goal is the same, which is to provide positive healing experiences for people and help them ultimately reintegrate into their families and into their societies societies in the most positive way possible. the The stigma, I, I think, you know, now decades to a longer of questioning the validity of this kind of knowledge and these kinds of ceremonies. Science, because of you know negative legislation against the plants, which put them you know in a kind of an illegal state for a long time, in different kinds of Western developed countries, um, you know, has retarded the amount of science that's been done on these plants. And so there's just less body of knowledge from the scientific perspective. That also places a stigma on it. And as that lessens, and there's more um, you know positive science that comes out about it, and then. There are also more prominent people in society that are, you know, expressing and admitting to having participated in the ceremonies. I think the stigma starts to wane. And then as more people receive the healing from it, they start to realize, wow, there are alternatives. And um, I just think that's fundamentally positive. The idea is to embrace these medicines in a, a really respectful nature to them. And uh, it'd be great to have them practiced in all the different ways that there's real true efficacy and power behind them. Absolutely. And, and, do you, and do you feel that that legislation is more of a, a control mechanism, in your opinion, or do you think it's more of like trying to protect people and it's done with positive intentions? I think it's a mixed bag. You know, yeah. Demo yeah, democracy is a, a, a incredible phenomenon, right? I think people get born into it now, you know, so much so that they forget how young it is as a kind of collective technology. It's a very, very young, still very experimental collective technology. And so the populace governing itself through its elected officials, um, you know, is, is a, still an experiment. In doing so, it doesn't mean that everyone elected is really, you know, a solid lawmaker or even knows what they're talking about. And then when you add in lobbies and economic interests, <laughs> control, fear, um, you know, it's very easy to create this us versus them. They're the government. We're ourselves. 
but really it's the populace making these decisions and living by it collectively. I think there's obviously a lot of manipulation associated with it. And I think early on in the legislation and the, the understanding of these plants was very limited because there wasn't the anthropology, there hadn't been the pioneers that had ultimately really been embraced in the indigenous cultures to be able to understand it and to be able to guide and direct the science to really a more positive understanding and impact. I think that um, something that has to be taken into consideration, even though I think it's kind of a travesty in history, is that the plants that are now being proven to have tremendous healing capacities were considered plants that had no medical benefit. So a scheduled one substance in the United States means it's psychoactive and has absolutely no medical benefit. So I think if you're now discovering that a lot of plants that are on that list have medical benefit, you have to question how you got to that idea of no medical benefit and what processes were you using to come up with that statement about those plants and what, what science, what tests were you doing on those plants at that time? Or what was the mindset or what was the bias of the practitioners to come up with that? Because that is literally a 180. That's a black and white mistake that has kept medicines that were tribally used for thousands and thousands of years from modern day populations that needed those medicines during this entire time that they weren't being utilized. And so to me, that's a travesty that you would withhold medicines from the populace that need them when they come from nature themselves. So I think to unpack that and really understand what went down and why that, you know, went, went in those directions is, uh, you know, probably a, a, a vast knowledge, knowledge base of study. But I think there's got to be manipulations, misunderstandings, faulty science, and, you know, sadly, a lot of other kinds of warped distortions to make that happen. I think you're right, especially with a, a lot of bias, you know, a lot of input, you know, and just agendas or whatever it could be, you know, and just then therefore, you know, all that misinformation comes out, the fear, everything else gets spun. Do you think, at least, I, how do you feel? Do you feel like with, at least in Western culture, that almost, not dependency, but almost dependency on pharmaceuticals is keeping us from our connection to nature and it's almost a divergence even more so that where we need to be getting back to nature, but this is just keeping us as separate as possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've, if you ask nature, you have to ask yourself where you came from and the answer is nature. So, you know, there's evidence for evolution over millions of years to get to the first homo sapiens. And there's evidence of, proto homo sapiens before homo sapiens so where did they come from they didn't come from cities they didn't come from quote unquote civilization they didn't come from western pharmaceuticals right so when i think of that i think okay we're really talking about the use of our technologies all of our technologies ultimately came from the consciousness that was developed from nature itself so we are nature we are natural we're from the natural world and we've abstracted different kinds of linguistics and philosophies and understandings that have allowed us to be able to create so many different kinds of technologies that we now live within those technologies and consider anything outside of those technologies nature. And to me, that's just backwards in the philosophy itself. It's, I am nature. I come from nature. I can choose to live in a city. A city is a terraformed environment that was created by humans out of nature itself using natural resources. And so it is nature too. It's just so formed by humans to and enculturated to a point that what we bring inside of that, we normalize. And what's seen as outside of that is seen as quote unquote nature. And so, you know, 
the aspect of that control matrix, I think, is phenomenon. I mean, a, a phenomenal and a, a phenomenon in its own right. So much so that we've now turned only to the nature of that technology to understand our reality. And in doing so, we've created a tremendous fear because we've distanced ourselves from the, the natural expression of our biology, the natural expression of our aging, the natural expression of illness, the natural expression of disease, and how we ultimately treat that as a society. And then we've you know, used chemistry and biology and biotech to create this vast array of pharmaceutical medicines. Most people don't know that the origin of the study of all of those medicines were the compounds that could be found in nature before the compounds started to be synthesized. The original chemists were all working with natural compounds before they started to synthesize synthetic compounds. Most of the designs and the architecture for the actual molecules themselves of synthetic compounds are built off of natural compounds. You know, if you look at the way um, modern societies are created, the megalopolises, and you tear them down into their fundamental architecture, they actually look very much like insect hives. They look very much like the organization of, you know, mycelium networks or the organization of jungles or the organization of, uh, you know, different kinds of ants and wasps and, you know, different kinds of insects. And so you, you see this fundamental core geometry being used. You look at the, um, the technology and the architecture that's being used to create space vehicles. And you see all these hexagonal patterns because of the weight and, and, you know, structure and strength. And then you go to a beehive and you see it's exactly the same. So science actually pulled from all of these different resources across every single category of thought to the point that we've been so enculturated in one mindset that we now separate ourselves from nature. And I think that that's just fundamentally sad and something that's a root cause of a lot of the malaise and, and dis-ease that people are experiencing in the world. Because fundamentally we are nature. I think when we open up to that, we can embrace that the original medicines all came from plants and different kinds of animals. That's an evolutionary uh, phenomenon. It's a miracle of this earth to have life itself and to have all of these different compounds that are found within all these different plants, um, including plants that we cook with every day are medicinal in their own right. Uh, ginger and garlic are incredible antivirals just alone. Um, you know, so we have all of these incredible uh, medicinal plants around us that are part of our food, and we've just forgotten how to frame the information within those you know, means to understand how we are nature and part of nature. And then from there, we can embrace the other kinds of medicines, the other synthesized medicines. But I think with a little bit more caution and a little bit uh, maybe more understanding that they come with certain kinds of costs, not just the, the physical monetary cost, but also the side effects. And, um, you know, the, not, the, the pills don't ultimately work for everybody the same way. And so I think there you can embrace that there are lots of alternative treatments. Many of those alternative, quote, alternative treatments are actually much older than the modern treatments. Some of them are, have you know 10,000 years, 15,000 years of historic record associated with them. Give those a try. Uh, see, see if you can get benefit from less invasive kinds of treatment. Um, you know, a pill isn't always the simplest solution. It might be a really easy way to administer a medicine. But if it causes a lot of side effects and, you know, other kinds of symptoms down the road, well, now you're, you know, creating a problem, combating a problem, and that isn't simpler. 
you know, so it might be easier to, you know, try some holistic forms of medicine first. I couldn't agree more. I love that. It's always baffled me how, well, I mean, I guess, <clears throat> you know, it's what you're born into, but it, it's, it's always been strange to me how some people can feel more comfortable just, you know, taking a pill and, and yet not try a tincture or a tea or maybe any, anything natural. Um, there's just like a disconnect. It seems with a lot of folks that they're more comfortable doing something that they can buy on a shelf or get prescribed to them through who they see as, you know, a doctor, you know, do you think that that's starting to change? I do. I do. I think that the need is making it change. I think there's just vast, vast kind of fluctuations, ebb and flows over time. And I like to think of time in a very expanded way. So I like to think about what we're doing today and what we did 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, and 100,000 years ago. Well, 100,000 years ago, no one was taking any pharmaceuticals. Today, lots of people are taking lots of pharmaceuticals, right? Uh, 10,000 years ago, we knew more healing practices than we did 100,000 years ago. Right today, those practices are still being practiced in small populations all around the world. So right now, those healing arts are being practiced, and people are receiving benefit from them. Right now, lots of prescriptions are being written and sold. Right, so that gives me choice, and I need to take responsibility for my health. My health is one of the most important things that I can have in life. Probably the most important, and it's the most important resource I can have, and we can have and share as a society. If your community is sick, you're sick. When you live in a tribal society, because it's such a small population living from the forest itself, if anyone in the tribe is sick, the tribe is less capable as being a survival unit than if everybody's healthy. So we've gotten into this mindset of you know measuring disease, not measuring health. So as we take responsibility for our health, we start to realize being healthy is a form of, of not needing medicines because I'm living a lifestyle that's a very healthy lifestyle. That starts with diet, that starts with hydration, it starts with different kinds of physical activity. Don't really like the term exercise because I see exercise actually can do a lot of harm to people. So I just like physical activity. There's a lot of physical activity to life itself. So you have diet, you have hydration, you have physical activity. Diet is bringing in the molecules, compounds, medicines that I need to be able to sustain the physical body. The physical body doesn't just sustain itself by itself. Every breath is an exchange of molecules and atoms that's nourishing the body itself. So as I, as I take responsibility for my health, as I take responsibility for the health of the people around me, I can start to see that I need many more options than what I'm just being kind of force fed or presented with. You know, And if you look at the way medicine's really practiced, sadly, I think a lot to do with the economics around it you get sent to really the worst care first, not the best care first. It's like, I just go to urgent care. Well, urgent care is designed to urgently intervene, not go in depth into my problem, right? We need to start at, let's go in depth into the problem, understand the problem completely, and then start to treat it. But the system isn't designed that way. So I have to take that responsibility for myself. In doing so, I need to do research, I need to learn, and it's exciting. It's really interesting stuff. There's an unbelievable amount of information about it to learn more about how your body works, which is unique. And I think of every human being as a unique miracle because there's still no true explanation for us. We're all a unique one-off. They break the mold every time. 
The DNA is different. The genetics are different. It's different every time. It's a miracle. So to get to know your own miracle in a more intimate way, in a more in-depth way is actually really exciting. And you start to find out that you know, your body is going to work different to somebody else's. And there's just so much more that's out there that you can receive and that you can bring to your own life. And then through that, the life of others. And I think as you take that opportunity in the modern world, yeah, it has thousands of pharmaceuticals, but now there are also thousands of globally known healing techniques. And there's hundreds and thousands of medicinal plants. And there's, you know, different kinds of, of body care and holistic practices that support. So if you bring all of that together, it's just a richer pantheon of ways of being able to support health and ultimately treat illness if necessary. Mm, I love that. And, and what would you suggest individuals do? I mean, are there some books, maybe some documentaries, things that really inspired you to get you on this trajectory? I think you have to find the people that you resonate with, you know, so there are the people that I resonated with, and I don't know if other people will resonate with those people. But what I do know is that there's been enough authors and enough really intelligent people who've shared a lot of wisdom and ideas that if you take some time just to get into it, you'll find people that you resonate with, right? And so I loved early on reading Michael Harner's work on shamanism, and I loved um, Krishnamurti from Eastern philosophies, although he had a little different trajectory. He was, you know, called um, sort of prophetically into the role that he had. And then he, he stepped back from it and said, hey, maybe there's more going on here than just the traditions I was brought up in. So I liked that ability to, to you know, see more about what was going on. Um, I was really interested in, in just finding as much information as I could online uh, and then trying to filter that information for what seemed legitimate information versus what seemed just like, in, you know, whatever, made up information. Um, I also went into anthropological texts. So I read about the societies, the tribal societies that, you know, had these medicines. I tried to look for any kind of science that had been written on them. Um, there aren't any specific authors that I could point to and say, okay, those people are, you know, the ones that I would look for. Um but all of that information ultimately came together to be really supportive to my journey. And, you know, on shamanism and, and Eastern philosophy, those two, Harner and, and Krishnamurti were very impactful. Love that. And you bring up such a great point. You know, it's, it's about what, what and who we resonate with and really just what we're getting from it. And it speaks to the, the higher part of it and what, what consciousness really is and what we're trying to what we think we're trying to experience when we're actually experiencing it already. You know, you talked about earlier with like, you know, just our environment, our food, everything around us and that beautiful geometry that's there. I mean, mm. it's, it's almost as if in, you know, conjecture for a moment, but like, it's, it's almost as if this, this consciousness is there. And when we decide to step into it and experience it and realize that we're still becoming and we are all part of this. Um, and yet, and I think that's where that separation is for individuals who, when they're still proverbially asleep versus waking up to it. I mean, at least, at least that's one perception of it or interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. So with your ceremonies and, and what you do for folks, uh, how could folks find you and uh, Blue Morpho? Yeah, the easiest way is just to come to our website. So bluemorphotours.com. 
And um, there we you know, have information on the retreats that we offer and the kinds of ceremonies we offer. And if you're interested in coming on one of those retreats, you can book right through the website. So bluemorphotours.com. And then you can find us on Instagram and on Facebook under Hamilton Souther or Hamilton Souther Official. Awesome. Any, uh, any new literary things, any new publications or books on the way? Yeah, actually, um, I'm about ready to publish part two of the series about my apprenticeship and the development of Blue Morpho. So I don't have a set number of how many parts that story will have, but we're going to be publishing part two, uh, I think, next month. So I think by next month, uh, it'll be done through editing, and I'm excited about bringing that out. And I'm actually also launching a mystic school. So in the relaunch of Blue Morpho post-COVID, which is really exciting, we're going to be launching a mystic school. Uh, Traditional apprenticeship just doesn't really work mostly in terms of time for people who are interested in this from around the world. So we're actually putting together a curriculum and people will be able to, you know, experience this in a more in-depth way if they would like to study and there'll be a lot more materials about it. Oh, that's awesome. So what could folks expect from the the mystery school? Um, you, you know, like long-term, short-term? Yeah. On the short term, you would have uh, the opportunity for more in-depth experiences, uh, you know, some, some reading and some, some literature on, the plants and how we utilize them, the ceremonial experiences themselves, the process of the purifications and the dietas. And in terms of long-term, there would be then the expansion to other cultures, all the different kinds of uh, visionary plants and psychedelic experiences that are uh, important for medicine practices, going actually to those different locations and the different cultures around the world to experience it firsthand in the presence of the elders of those communities, and then really in-depth experiential knowledge that if you're interested, could become a lifelong path and a lifelong pursuit. That's awesome. Any uh, any upcoming events where folks could come see you or listen to you? Yeah, so um, in October and November and December this year, down in Blue Morpho in Peru, we're going to be having in-person retreats for the first time since COVID. So those are gonna be really amazing. Those are gonna be ayahuasca retreats with uh, four ayahuasca ceremonies. And that would be the the first place to be able to come in person and see us. That's awesome. That's great. Well, Hamilton, I appreciate you taking some time today to talk to us. And uh, I really can't thank you enough for your, your time and your energy. I just truly appreciate what you're doing for folks. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. And it's been great to chat with you today. And there you have it. I cannot thank Hamilton enough for just so much. His time, his space, his energy. He shared so many wonderful stories and gave us a lot of insight on a professional and safe ayahuasca ceremony and ritual and some best practices and how to navigate some of those if maybe you suffer from anxiety or depression or obsessive compulsive disorders and what have you. We lightly touched upon Hamilton's book, The Mystical Secrets of Medicine versus Sorcery, The Untold Story of Ayahuasca, part one. And I would implore each and every one of you to check that out. And I was excited to hear part two's coming, so be sure to check that out. The Mystical Secrets of Medicine versus Sorcery, Untold Story of Ayahuasca. You can find Hamilton and Blue Morpho at bluemorphotours.com. And you can find Blue Morpho on Instagram at bluemorphoretreats. Be sure to find Hamilton on Instagram at Hamilton Souther. If you're watching this episode, be sure to hit that like button, and we hope you subscribe to the channel. And if you're listening to this on a podcast platform, please take a moment and rate it. We're still a new podcast. You rating it gives us some visibility to other people so that other people can discover this great content. Thank you all so much for joining us on this journey. Until next time.
take care of one another and keep thinking for yourself.